Hi, I'm Stephanie McNeil, and today on AM2DM, we have Elizabeth McGovern from the all-new Downton Abbey movie. We'll see you on the timeline. Good morning, Twitter. I'm Alex Berg, he's Zach Stafford, and you are watching AM2DM. Good, good, good morning. Sorry, I didn't say good, good, good morning. <laughs> it's so hard to say that twice. All right, RK, you tweeted, whose dumbass idea was it to raise Whitney Houston from the grave and do a hologram tour? Let the dead rest in fucking peace. Kai Choice tweeted, this is so disrespectful. Please don't make me work after I die. Amen. And I have to say, gotta agree with that one. I mean, let, let, let Whitney rest in peace, y'all. She went through so much with her family, her career, Bobby Brown. Like, this is too much. This is too much. And also, I don't get who wants to go see a hologram do a song okay, for that long. Okay, so aside from the fact that it is bizarre, I feel, to send someone on tour as a hologram, <laughs> who wants to sit and watch a hologram perform? I, I don't quite understand. I'm very skeptical also about how good the hologram would be able yeah. to perform. Does it just mean that like they actually play Whitney Houston's music and mm -hmm. then the hologram lip Probably the live recordings so, I mean, I just them. don't, yeah. But my thing is, if you all remember, Miss Whitney Houston was not known for her dancing or moving. Mama just sat there and sat there and sang. So what are we gonna do? Watch a hologram just sit there and sing? I, I don't get it. Like you girls will waste money on anything. <laughs> it's also, there's I think a piece of it that feels really exploitative too, because sure. she's not around to say that she's mm -hmm. okay with her image being used in this way. We exactly. don't know. I mean, I don't know if it was one of her uh, last wishes that people send her reincarnated hologram. I, I don't think that's anyone's last wish. It would not be mine. Mother, remember this. It's not my last wish to be made into a hologram and do this damn show, okay? So BuzzFeed. Nobody make would do note that. of this now. Could you imagine hologram versions of us up here? Ugh, no, like why? I think it would be though? better with a show, a morning show. But performances, you go there to see people like, you know, live, sing, mess up, be, and like touch them. You can't yeah. touch it. Like when Beyonce goes through her crowds and touches people, that's what makes that show for me. Yeah. Not the hologram. And I have to say, this doesn't just go for Whitney for me. I don't want to see anyone. All right. Perform no one. Program. Nobody. I, okay. Nobody. So I have a. I have one person Who? I don't mind. Elvis Presley. I don't know why, but, but is, Elvis it that, is it that you don't mind if Elvis Presley is yeah, made into mind. a hologram, or you, you're not standing here being like, "Wow, you know, one concert I really want to go." Oh no, to I don't want to like. Elvis I'm not Presley paying as a hologram. But if you, you just called, it doesn't, you're unbothered. Yeah, by if you it. called me and said, "Hey, there's an Elvis Presley hologram." Yeah, concert, I just and we have I mean, tickets. I would go. I guess I don't. I, I just don't care about Elvis that much. <laughs> um, it also just doesn't feel too soon. Like this feels. Way this too is far soon. too soon. Far too yeah, soon. Yeah, but, exactly. You know, but there are so many people that like are so desperate to see their idols out there um, that you know I'm going to respect you if you want to do that. Yeah. So you know, yeah. that's your I thing. mean, I'm actually curious about what everybody else thinks, and we want to hear from you. Yeah. How do you feel about bringing back artists as holograms? Just using the hashtag AM to DM. Maybe there is an artist that you would uh, want to see perform. I'm say Spice Girls for you. Absolutely not. Do not do that to the Spice okay, Girls. Okay, we'll move on. I'll stop bullying Yes, you. please. <laughs> uh, switching gears very much this morning. Here's a tweet from Rachel Bade. I covered Hillary Clinton's Benghazi hearing. I covered Lois Lerner taking the fifth. And I have to say, this Corey Lewandowski testimony is unlike anything I've seen before. Pure defiance and disregard for Democrats' impeachment investigation. Lewandowski, of course, is President Trump's former campaign manager. Congressman Ted Lieu, a Democrat representing California's 33rd district, was at yesterday's hearing and questioned Lewandowski himself. Congressman Lou joins us now. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Now, to kick us off, what was the aim of yesterday's hearing? Do you think Democrats achieved what you set out to do? Yeah. Uh, thank you for that question. Uh, I do. So despite the ongoing cover-up and obstruction by the White House, who 
prevented Corey Lewandowski from answering many questions. The questions that he did answer confirmed the Mueller report. And that's very important because what the Mueller report showed is that the president obstructed justice when he directed Corey Lewandowski to deliver a message to then Attorney General Jeff Sessions to stop the investigation into the president. That meets all the elements of obstruction of justice, and Corey Lewandowski confirmed it. Mm. So uh, when you were speaking with Corey uh, Lewandowski, you told him not to question your love of country. What about that remark was particularly upsetting for you? Uh, So I was uh, taken aback and very upset when Corey Lewandowski questioned the love that Democrats had for our country. I reminded him that I served in the active duty in the United States military, that he should not question my love of country. I'm not going to question his because we are all Americans. And I think while trying to do the right thing for our country, we may have different goals and different views, uh, but our loyalty should not be questioned. And why do you think he was so pointed in saying that Democrats are not loving their country? What is he trying to accomplish by framing you all that way? Yeah. Well, it's a standard Trump talking point where they try to demonize the opposition. Uh, They question our loyalty. Uh, This is the same Donald Trump that also told minorities that they should go back to their country. Uh, So it was consistent uh, with uh, sort of uh, the demonizing of opponents uh, that the Trump presidency and campaign have done for two and a half years now. On that front of demonizing opponents, Lewandowski was evasive and even adversarial when it came to answering many questions yesterday. Um, Do you feel like Democrats were prepared for the degree to which he did that? Uh, We were. We knew in advance that the White House was directing him not to answer a lot of questions. They made up this BS baloney privilege, uh, basically absolute immunity that somehow Uh, If you talk to the president, you can't then relay any of that information, even though it was all in the Mueller report. Uh, There is no such immunity. No courts have ever upheld it, especially because Corey Lewandowski was not even a federal employee. He was a private citizen at the time. So we're going to win in court uh, on this claim. And uh, when we do win in court on this claim, as well as McGahn's claim, we'll be bringing back all these witnesses again, making them testify under oath. Well, uh, on that front, uh, Barry Burke, a lawyer who's a consultant for the Judiciary Committee, was really praised yesterday for his questioning uh, towards the end of the day. Um, Do you think it would have been more useful even for him to have asked all of the questions or had even more time with Lewandowski? Uh, Barry was awesome in his questioning. Uh, In the future, it would be great if Barry went first. I think uh, that would have been helpful. Uh, So uh, I did actually recommend that uh, to the Judiciary Committee. So we'll see as these hearings go along uh, what's the best way to structure them. Okay. So when it comes to bringing in members of Trump's inner circle to testify, what's the end game here? What are you all hoping to get out of them? So we want to establish uh, that obstruction of justice occurred. We know from the report that there were 10 instances. Of those 10, five, the special counsel find had substantial evidence. Yesterday, Corey Lewandowski already confirmed one of these instances. There already is a mountain of evidence that Donald Trump committed multiple felonies. And we're trying to educate the American people about the crimes that the president engaged in. Now, we want to get into a little bit of news uh, from today. Um, Politico is reporting this morning that Nancy Pelosi was critical of how the House Judiciary Committee has dealt with impeachment. Um, What's your reaction to the reporting that there's a rift between Pelosi and Congressman Jerry Nadler and that it's getting worse? 
Right. Uh, all the court filings, all the hearings uh, have all been signed off by Speaker Pelosi's office. I think the article makes uh, much more about uh, any apparent rift than there actually is. Uh, my personal view is that it is very clear Donald Trump committed multiple felonies. Now, what members of Congress do with that fact, it's up to their conscience and their district. And whatever the House Democratic Caucus decides, uh, I will respect and a decision will be made before the end of the year. Okay. So earlier this morning, Democratic donor Ed Buck has been arrested. Two men died of drug overdoses at his home and a third overdosed. And you previously have said you donate funds from your campaign uh, received from Buck to civil rights organizations. So first off, we'd love to hear your reaction to this news this morning. And do you think other officials should follow your lead in giving money back to charity? Right. Uh, anyone who has been uh, engaged in criminal activity should be prosecuted and sentenced appropriately. Uh, I have already previously sent back all the donations and contributed them to uh, civil rights groups and uh, other nonprofit organizations, as well as LGBT groups. Okay. Well, Congressman Louie, appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Okay. Well, here's a tweet from the Los Angeles Times. Breaking, the prominent Democratic donor and LGBTQ political activist Ed Buck was arrested Tuesday and charged with operating a drug house and providing methamphetamine to a 37-year-old man who overdosed last week, officials said. Here's the tweet from Beatrice Elizabeth Peterson. Activists have been calling for Buck's arrest, believing him responsible for the deaths of Jamel Moore, 26, and Timothy Dean, 55. Both black gay men were found in Buck's West Hollywood apartment less than two years ago apart. Joining us now to discuss is writer George Johnson. Good morning, George. Good morning. All right, so Buck has been arrested only after a third man nearly died at his home. Why do you think it took this long? We know it took this long because of who the victims were. Um, oftentimes when the victims come from, uh, you know, marginalized communities, i.e. the victims being black and also being queer, we know that the justice system isn't gonna move as fast, um, especially against someone like Buck, who, again, we know donated to many uh, influential Democrats, um, including the ones you just interviewed, even though he did give the money back. Uh, eventually after pressure, uh, but someone who had that much power in a lot of political spaces, that much power just in the country as a, a white man who had privilege, uh, it, it it stopped the justice system from ever working for Gimmel, Timothy, as well as the, even though it is seemingly working for the third victim at this point. Now, you've been on the show before to talk to us uh, about this. Um, I want to talk about the first, the first two deaths. Uh, do we know anything about what's going on with the investigations into those? Well, with the first death, uh, the investigation was closed uh, with no action being taken. It took, though, for Jasmine Kanick, who's another writer, to keep pushing the issue. And then some of us kind of came on afterwards to write about it and make sure that we covered the story to even push the L.A. prosecutor to open the investigation. Uh, once they opened the investigation, I think it took about three to four months, and then they ended up closing out the investigation. So no action was taken at all in the case of Gimmel. Uh, with Timothy, an investigation was never even open. Uh, currently, though, you also do have uh, Latasha Nixon, who is Gimmel's mom. She just, uh, their first day in court, I believe, was Monday for the wrongful death suit. So that was the next steps that we were working on uh, before today's news. So, you know, something that was striking in the reporting with the latest uh, issues around Ed Buck is that prosecutors are saying he is targeting black men who are homeless and have addiction issues. How common is this across the black queer community right now, George? 
Well, we do know that the meth epidemic, it, it is affecting many um, Black queer people in general across the country. Uh, and again, I think that's the important part to note in here is that it's not just about how a white gay man is fetishizing um, the Black body, which is something we often see. He's intentionally choosing targets that are vulnerable because of homelessness, because of um, poverty, because of inability to have a sustainable income, because of addiction. And so in targeting these particular victims, he's able to manipulate the system and manipulate them in a sense into doing um, the things and the, the, the sexual favors that he wants. Now, something you kind of touched on um, before in this case, uh, how does the handling of this case, what does it tell us about uh, the way the justice system treats uh, victims of crimes, in particular when they are Black queer individuals? Well, I mean, I think you can even look, at, you know, take it even a step back. It's just how do we treat victims of crimes when they're Black individuals? Uh, we've discussed how within many of the different movements, even like a, a Me Too movement, how when Black victims victims were also trying to even get involved in that. It was a different set of standards or a different set of terms. Uh, I can recall how Harvey Weinstein, the only person he said that he never um, sexually assaulted was Lupita when she finally talked about her story, right? And we watched how other people struggled when it was Black actresses, actresses um, saying they were the victim. So I think overall, the justice system just has always failed anytime time uh, the victim is Black. When you then intersect that with homophobia, that anti-Blackness and homophobia both create um, an angle where Black queer victims can never be victims. It's always going to be, oh, well, it was brought on them because they were in this particular type of work, i.e. sex work, or, oh, they brought it on themselves. They'll always find a reason for us not to be the victim or for us to bring the trauma or the uh, harm to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, now that Ed Buck is sitting in a jail and he may face prison time, we're going to probably see more conversations around mm-hmm. his political donations now that mm-hmm. he looks to be guilty, or now he's alleged guilty at the moment. Do you think people should follow this trend that Ted Lieu is trying to set out of giving back the money um, that Ed Buck has given them historically? Absolutely. I think most of the most of the people who received um, funding, if I'm not mistaken, most of them did uh, give the money back again, but it took a very long time. And I, I believe a lot of it was also because it was like around the midterm elections. And so a lot of them didn't want to really deal with the story. I think now that we're going into a 2020 Senate race as well as a presidential election, this is going to be a thing that you have to deal with. But I also think it's going to start to shine a light on some of these other major donors who have done nefarious things to uh, to harm uh, other communities as well, because you really just shouldn't be taking money from the community or from people who are also being harmful to your voters or, you know, people who you also expecting to uh, vote for you. Yeah, it definitely feels like uh, that could be a piece of the kind of next iteration of this story. George, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right, so later on in the show, Stephanie sits down with Downton Abbey star Elizabeth McGovern. But up next, it's time for Fire Tweets. Fire! Fire! Welcome back. It is time for Fire Tweets. We are not holograms. We are I love really that shimmy. here. The shimmy was ooh, Alex is very much of, here ooh. with the shimmy, the hair, the face. I am. I am all of it. Oh, thank you. I feel so seen. She came prepared. I wore a denim jacket. She said, "Baby, I, I, got, love, you, okay. I got you a see-through top." <laughs> I, I have to say, I love. I love the denim jacket. Really? Yeah, oh, because you're you, like bro. calm, cool, collected. You have some accessories on. Denim Dan, you know. as someone once called me. 
denim dance. Oh, someone. <laughs> we know who we know who our commenters are. Let's get it to these <laughs> James, you tweeted. I'm afraid of who I might become once it starts getting dark again after five. I might be full goth by Christmas. Which I have to say, I feel so attacked by this Alex is on because of this shirt. I think that I already am going full goth, you yeah. know? Yeah. It's kind of like witchy goth. I mean, goth is kind of witchy, witchy, I guess. Yeah, I was thinking as I put it on, I was like, it's fall, it's close to Halloween, so it makes sense. Mm-hmm. No, actually not fall yet. Actually not that close to Halloween. But that's not stopping so, Alex from decorating her home. There isn't. Check out her Instagram. <laughs> All right, VS, you treat it. Why McDonald's want to call they Sprite a soft drink? Bitch, that is hard liquor. I haven't had a Sprite from McDonald's in years, but it's yeah, delicious. I mean, it's uh, it's an intense, and I know an intense why, beverage. Do you know why I know it's delicious? Because when I'm really desperate and hungover in an airport, there's nothing better than a McGriddle with sausage really? and a Sprite. Let me tell you about that blessing, y'all. Okay, we'll no, noted when we're on our way mm-hmm. back from uh, Iowa, Iowa this weekend, which will be in... <laughs> Uh, tomorrow, Zach is so hosting an LGBT forum. Yeah, yeah. I will Noted. I'll, drink I'll grab you that. one. <laughs> Connor, you tweeted, someone stole my debit card, went and spent $60 at a restaurant and only left a $4 tip. It's not even your card and you left a $4 tip? Unreal. Oof. That's not even 10%. What is wrong with you? It wasn't your money. Why wouldn't you leave like a $100 tip? <laughs> yeah, that waiter was like this cheap bastard. Actually, and no. Like, it's, is that even no, me? No, that's the thing. That is, it's just proof that whoever stole the card is mm-hmm. just fully an asshole because they stole your card and then couldn't even tip enough. Hey, like, what a jerk. Maybe they're going to save my money for me. I sure <laughs> bet at that. Yes, after they buy whatever gourmet meal they're buying. Okay, fair. Okay, maybe they're not. Anyway, shot. You treat it. <laughs> I hear me out. Math low-key fun when you know what the fuck you are doing. Not really, not for me. <laughs> I think there, I had a moment, a brief moment in a pre-algebra class where I was like, I have a grip on this. Like, it's okay. It's not painful. Yeah. I don't know if it was ever fun. Like, the first class of geometry, I was like, ooh, a circle. Ooh. <laughs> like, Shapes. Triangles. <laughs> Cute. Love a triangle. But then it went to whatever. Yeah. Fell, fell apart. Actual, actual more numbers. More formulas and <laughs> yes. stuff. All right. Tweet of the day. Yep. Comes from Selena Darling. I don't want hustlers. I want a TV show about a strip club shot like The Office where you only ever see the dressing room, manager's office, and bathroom. And I would absolutely watch that. But I would want it in addition to hustlers. Yes, I want both things. I want all of my new content to be, you know, about strip clubs, dance clubs, all these industries. I think we need more of this in the world. But this would be about, like, the workplace dysfunction and, you know. The realities of it. People... Pose does a really great job of showing like the the kind of the both all the sides of sex work where like how mundane standing on that street can be for your face work. So I think we need more of these narratives. It helps people kind of destigmatize them and thinking of them as like these are jobs, y'all, and you're gonna hate that job someday. (laughs) It would be like the Hustlers TV Mm spinoff of them arguing over like who gets to sit in what chair Mm -hmm. backstage, you know, while they're doing their makeup or something. I watch. Or like bringing kids in because the babysitter couldn't come to work, so they're hiding their yeah. I love that. We're gonna write this. We're here for it. Yeah. All right. Well, coming up, you get to see Stephanie sit down with Downton Abbey's actor, Elizabeth McGovern. But up next, there's more AM to DM. This is from A to Z, and here's a tweet from Bridget Marie, uh, Marie commenting on a new Wall Street Journal podcast about salaries. My first real job paid $42,000, and I thought I was Chris fucking Jenner. Here's a tweet from Derek the Bard. I made less than $30,000 per year at my last job. I make $50,000 per year at my current job, and it feels like a friggin' fortune by comparison. I just replaced my broken bike without borrowing money from my parents or worrying about not making rent. <clears throat> mm. So when this came out yesterday, my Twitter was 
filled with people being like, girl, when I first graduated college, I did not, I wished I made $50,000. Yeah. I was lucky yeah. to make $30,000. And it was kind of incredible to see this conversation happening about like, where do we all begin on this like ladder of salaries um, and where people's expectations are? Because 50 Gs, depending on where you're at, is like it's really, a lot of money. That's a lot of money. Where I'm from, I know families, that's how much they yeah, make. Yeah, absolutely. Not that they're having the most incredible lives. They're not going to like Sancho Pay, but like that's what they're they're living on. But the fact that the Wall Street Journal was like, we're going to do a podcast and show you how exotic these $50,000 like actually, uh, a lot of people make that you know. It's, like, it's insane. It's yeah, I mean, um, I remember when I first graduated from college, uh, the first journalism job that I got actually after grad school. At first, you got ten dollars an hour, mm-hmm. and then if you were like doing a good job and they wanted to keep you on board, you got fifteen dollars an hour, and then that was bumped up to an actually thirty-five thousand dollars a year salary. And I think a lot of it is informed by and, and like how people feel about the the amount of money they're making is informed yeah. by like where you are already. Do you have a lot of debt? Are you supporting <sighs> dependents or your family? Um, where do you live? Geography is mm-hmm. huge. Like I think um, you know the cost of living here is so much that like living in New York City on $35,000 where your rent can easily be, you know, if you're sharing an apartment at least $1,000, like versus a place like Philly where I had friends living in amazing apartments for like $400 -hmm. a month. Like that's a huge difference in how much you need to make. And when I was, I graduated college in Chicago and I stayed there for some years before moving. And you know, I was making like, I was, my salary was not that there. I had to have, I think, three or four jobs at the time right out of it. Out of it. And because I was getting paid uh, part-time, and some were like $13,000, some were $12,000. So I think altogether it was like right under 40 to put it all together. And I wasn't like struggling per se because Chicago is less expensive and I was able to like pay my student loans and go to eat and maybe have a cocktail. But would I say that we should be so confused at how someone's making 50 grand work? No, not at all when the poverty line's at like $32,000. And I think people need to realize that like lives, how we spend our money and how we live our lives is personal choices. And depending on how much money you make shouldn't like you shouldn't judge people on that and think that their life life is less than yours just of because they're not, not yeah. going on vacation or doing yeah, these other things. So it's kind of insane to see that there's this idea that like 50 G's is like meh. Yeah, I think that I I really, really, really hate uh, the amount of shame that comes with money Mm -hmm. and especially the amount of shame that comes if you feel like you're not making enough money Mm -hmm. um, and just the, like, kind of stigma you can feel Mm -hmm. um, because of that. But I think that, like, for me, when I think about my ideal salary, I'm not thinking necessarily about a specific numerical figure. I'm thinking about, like, how is this salary serving me? Like, am I able to pay all of my bills? Am I able to pay my student loans? Am I able to, like, support who needs to be supported? Um, Do I have health care? Do I have, like— a little disposable income to be able to go on a vacation? Yeah. Am I able to, to like put away for top. retirement? <laughs> to buy a crop top, to buy a few crop tops. So I think for me, it's like my ideal situation is mm-hmm. when I'm having all of those needs met and yeah. then I also am able to put away some money for a future rainy day. Dumb. And I think that's such a good point for people to know is that, you know, I used to think about things as like salary markers. I'm going to make X amount, then this amount. There was someone that was involved in this story that's like, you know, by 30, I want to make $100,000. And an expert said, you know, don't think of it that way. Think of it about like your lived experiences. Are you comfortable? Are you doing the things you want to do? And I think that will help you with the stigma around that dollar sign. Because mm-hmm. if you wake up every day and you're like, you know what? I got the coffee I wanted. I got to send some money back home to mom or do whatever you want to do when you're hitting those things, thinking of it as life experiences, then I think you can have a healthier relationship with your salaries. Because honestly, as someone that has experienced lots of variance in salaries over the yeah, years, yeah. I know that like that number changing, there's always, what, what is it? More money, more problems. There's always, <laughs> there's always going to be something. Either you're paying more taxes now or this. So I think if you think about your lived everyday experiences and what really nurtures you, then that's the better way to approach yeah. this. Because that number, girl, you may meet some man like me that's like, oh, you're not making X amount of money. We're not going to Barney's. And I'm not shit for that. I but mean, that, yeah. I'm I, kidding. I never do that to men. 
it, you I can would, believe, believe what you want. I, it would require me having a man to say I think, that. <laughs> well, I think I just wish that our, like our self-worth was not tied up in the amount of money that we make, number one. Mm-hmm. But then, like number two, even though for me, I try not to dwell on a specific numerical figure, um, I do think it's really important to try to share information about yeah. your salary when and if you can, um, just to create like parity mm-hmm. at work. I think that like we are so culturally encouraged not to talk about how much money mm-hmm. we make, and then that silence ends up meaning that like not everybody knows how much they're getting paid yeah. for the same work, and that's a big problem, right? Exactly. We can only kind of take a stand and make yeah. sure everybody's paid equitably yes. if we have information. And my big that. advice before we move on to this, if you are a freelancer, Feel free to ask other freelancers yeah, about seriously. what they're making, because as someone that's been on the corporate side and the editorial leadership side, I've seen many companies exploit people because someone didn't know they were worth more, and they're like, "Oh, you're willing to take that much money? Cute. All right, pay them that." When it's yeah. like everyone else should be paid more. So talk about your salaries, but also what would be helpful if you thought about a number, maybe what can maybe help you um, yeah. in that case. But let's take it to the timeline. What magical salary number do you find yourself working towards? Let us know using the hashtag aim to DM. I mean, like a gazillion dollars. A gazillion. I don't know. That's <laughs> Just say a mil in your. Something like that. Like, done, you're fine. (laughs) Well, up next, I chat with June Diane Raphael about how women can run for office. Stay tuned. You know June Diane Raphael from her roles in Grace and Frankie, The Long Shot, and the podcast, How Did This Get Made? And now she's co-written a book called Represent, The Woman's Guide to Running for Office and Changing the World. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. And I want to get right into uh, this book. Why did you decide to dive into this topic? Oh, gosh. Well, after the 2016 election, I was feeling not great. (laughs) Not so great. Uh, And I was just devastated, to be totally honest. And and embarrassed and feeling just really, really sad and wondering if I was doing everything I could with my talent and energy and time and was seriously considering running for office. And I started doing some just light Googling and I realized there's not a ton of information out there, specifically addressing women and the fullness of their lives and all of the caretaking they do and all of the things that they do. And so I was asking the questions where would I run? How much money would I raise? Um, what would I do about some past photos that I know are out there somewhere? Just the logistical mm-hmm. questions of how it might work in my very real life. And I couldn't find a lot of answers. Mm. So that's why I set out to write this book with Kate Black and provide women with some answers and a roadmap for how they might run for office. Yeah, Kate Black, of course, is from Emily's List, which yes. folks may have heard from, um, heard about. And talk to me a little bit about the kind of information that you wanted to convey. Like you mentioned some of these uh, aspects of what it takes mm-hmm. to run. Um, what was the most important information you felt like you wanted to put out there? Well, for me, I think that there are so many questions surrounding caretaking. Women take do the majority of caretaking in this country, and a lot of that is unpaid labor. So really asking myself, do I have the time to do this? What about my small children? Um, at that point, I was also taking care of an older parent. Is there time in my life to run for office? Also, a lot of questions surrounding money. How much money would yeah. I have to raise? Uh, what offices are even available? So many people don't know this. Over There are over 500,000 seats to run for in the United States. And so often I think the news, we only get the picture of the federal government, but the truth is there are tons of ways to engage and to serve the public. Mm-hmm. Um, so even just doing a basic civics lesson for myself was really useful. Mm-hmm. And I think so many women, when we think of politicians and elected officials, we think of someone who's older and white and male and... 
um, has access to wealthy circles and has multiple degrees, and we don't consider ourselves. Mm -hmm. So the book also really encourages every woman to uh, consider herself. One of the things I appreciated at the outset of the book is that you um, really situate how being a white woman uh, of a certain class informs uh, your view and, and your access to uh, running for office. And I especially appreciated you have the Peggy McIntosh uh, piece in the very back of uh, the book that a lot of people may recognize um, being about white privilege and, and carrying the invisible knapsack. Um, why was it so important for you to, to write about that? And I guess, you know, how did thinking about that uh, inform the process of writing this book? Yeah, I mean, I think that... I believe firmly in a representative government, and that includes all people. Uh, and it was really important for both Kate and I to locate ourselves and our own experiences when we were writing a book for all women. <laughs> um, so to do that own work on uh, my identity was really important, and to do that investigation uh, was incredibly important to me when we are addressing so many different women and how this process might work. One of the big things that is a barrier for women is access to wealth. And for me, that was one of the most glaring uh, facts that came through in the book, that if you have access to personal wealth, generational wealth, or circles of wealth, this process will be a lot easier. Mm -hmm. It just will. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that it's impossible, mm -hmm. um, but there's a reality to that. Mm -hmm. uh, so we both really work to address that and to say, you know, we believe firmly that a representative government is a better government, and that includes uh, women who are domestic workers, sex workers, um, all types of women considering a run for office so that their experience is, has a voice at the table. Mm. Um, one of the things I was struck by is there's like an entire chapter devoted to the numbers, just kind of like where, where women stand in government by the numbers. Were there any statistics that really jumped out to you just about the dearth of women who are currently in office? Yeah, I mean, there's 23% of women in Congress, but women also make up over half of the population. So when you consider that and consider the fact that we are only making up a quarter of uh, Congress, that's pretty disturbing to me. Um, you know, I think right now we're in a moment where uh, there's, we're still in sort of that scarcity mentality of like, oh, wait, but didn't we already elect the women? Mm -hmm. Aren't they there? <laughs> we did that work, right? Mm -hmm. It's done. Yeah, we're done. That's yeah, it. That's we, all. we did you a know, great job. Like, we're good there now. And the truth is we have such a long way to go. Um, and, and women are also underrepresented up and down the ballot. So it's not just in the federal government. Um, so it's a problem that, that should be addressed at every branch of government. Yeah, one other thing you address in the book is uh, clothing, which is a really sensitive conversation sure. um, to have uh, for a, a litany of reasons. Um, but uh, so talk to me about the approach to clothing for someone who's considering running for office. Um, how did you want to approach it? What, what kind of conclusions did you come to? You know, I really struggled with whether to even include it or not, mm -hmm. because I know for so many women, clothes are a problem. And w w so many women struggle uh, with being looked at and only being looked at. Men can put, put on a suit and assume, and we assume they're powerful or are in positions of power. For women, that question becomes a lot more complicated. So um, we do address it. And what I think we ended up providing in our intention was to create a choose your own adventure. So if a woman just wants to know, like, what is the uniform? Tell me what to buy. I don't care about this. I want to get on with the work that I want to do um, and talking about the problems I want to solve, then yes, we do provide some options. Um, but we also 
address the woman who doesn't want to talk about this at all and wants to wear whatever she wants. Um, and we say, great, go into your closet, get that, and then go to the next chapter so you don't have to spend another minute talking about this. Mm -hmm. So we sort of provide several different ways into a very complicated discussion. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about some of your work um, outside of this book. Um, you're also one of the founders of uh, the Jane Club, which is mm -hmm. a co-working space for women, especially for women who are parents themselves. Mm -hmm. um, what was the importance of, of founding a space like this? You know, I actually, when I was writing the book was when I founded the Jane Club in Los Angeles because I did not have a space where I felt I could uh, take care of my very small children and also pursue my professional mm -hmm. dreams outside of them. Um, and I wanted to really marry those two experiences. So many women often feel that they're either apologizing for pursuing their paid work outside of their caretaking or apologizing for taking care of their children um, when they're at work. So. That to me, that disconnect was really troubling. Mm -hmm. And I think speaks to a larger issue of like how we value caretaking in our society. But the Jane Club really is there to bridge that gap. Mm. Um, now, before you go, I have to ask you at least one Grace and Frankie question. Let's do it. Um, it was just announced that uh, seven season, the season, seven season, season seven will be the very last season. Um, and also, uh, this show will have more episodes than any other Netflix series. Yeah. Um, so, how does it feel to be saying goodbye, and then also to have set this precedent of the most episodes? I'm devastated to say goodbye. I don't handle goodbyes very well. I'm very sad. I've had an unbelievable experience on the show. Um, it's just been, it's been one of the best professional experiences of my life. I love it so much, but it also, all things must come to an end. And I'm really proud to have been a part of a show that, that showcases women, um, in all of their full humanity, aging, um, and, and opening up that conversation about what it looks like to age as a woman hmm. in this country. Hmm. Bringing it full circle. <laughs> Would you rather see Grace or Frankie run for office? Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. I mean, I probably, I can't believe I'm going to say this because I am I think she's a Republican. I don't often vote this way, but I think I would vote for Grace. All right. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. And Represent is available now. Up next, Zach is talking with poet Shira Ehrlichman. A new collection of poetry by writer Shira, Shira Ehrlichman debuted yesterday, and Patricia, you tweeted, I want to say early so bad, Happy Pub Day, Oats of Lithium, a book, a book simultaneously unraveling and nourishing me. I've needed to look myself in the face. And thank you, Shira, for making this book not a pointed finger, but arms wide open. And Ashley C4 tweeted, Kel and I read every page of Oats of Lithium out loud to each other. Then we each bought our own copy. It's that good. And Shira joins me now. Everyone's loving this. You were in the New York Times yesterday. This is, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's amazing. Um, so, you know, I want to hear, why did you decide to write this book about, you know, lithium is such a deep topic for so many people? Yeah, I think it's kind of a boogeyman. Mm -hmm. um, usually when the word is brought up, it's mm -hmm. a bit scary. And for me, I was hospitalized when I was 22, which was a mere two years ago. Just kidding. It was 13 years ago. Um, and when I got out of the hospital, and it was really like an upheaval in my life, I was like a straight-A student, jock, kind of like a good girl, mm -hmm. and to have mental illness and be hospitalized and get out of the hospital, I felt very much at a loss, and I was looking for literature or 
the internet, which was really just my space, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, for something along the lines of how can I put together what I've been through. Mm -hmm. And so writing the book was time traveling and mm -hmm. giving Shira at age 22 that book and then hopefully anyone else who's dealing with mental illness um, specifically, but really all illness that, that throws your life or your loved one's life into mm -hmm. upheaval that the book is for them specifically. Yeah and, I, yeah, and I love that you frame it that way because even how you discuss in it about you know falling in love with lithium, it's mm -hmm. a very personal way of talking about it. <laughs> and tell me about that framing in your own journey of falling in love with something, yeah. a, a drug, but yeah. also thinking of it as a more human experience. Sure, thank you for that question. I think intimacy um, is the most important thing, whether it's with ourselves or others. Uh, and it's there's a bit of a drought at mm -hmm. times. And usually when something happens, like getting sick, it goes into the negative experience kind of column. Um, and so, of course, for me, I was like, I don't want to take meds. I don't want to be sick. Even about like nine years into my illness, I was still in a lot of denial. I had major relapses. Um, and there just came a point where in writing the first ode to lithium, mm -hmm. which I titled Pill because I didn't even want to say the word lithium out yeah. loud, um, in doing that and stepping closer to it and trying to become more intimate with it, which means you're more curious, which means you're more open, mm -hmm. um, you're less, it's not that you're less ashamed, but you're not letting shame lead the dance. Mm. Um, in stepping towards it, I just discovered like so much the way you kind of do when you fall in love with someone. Mm -hmm. um, and what ended up happening, it was, you know, it's great to have a book and it's wonderful, but the real process of writing the book made me feel like I was um, coming to know a friend, a teacher, a lover, uh, an element that could really teach me a lot about myself. Mm, yeah. And in the book, you know, you're not only talking about yourself a lot, but you're talking mm -hmm. about the relationships with lithium, but your people around you and your friends. Mm -hmm. What was it like kind of charting that for folks through this? Charting that for folks like, like talking about your friendships, yeah. revealing the relationships and why friendship was like such a big part of this. Yeah. So I think for me, um, in order to be honest with anyone else, you have to be honest with yourself. And so starting, I kind of wrote the book in concentric circles that go in and out between the self, mm -hmm. friends and family, the medical kind of institution or establishment, and then culture at large. And so, you know, you're shaping culture every day, and we also shape it when we go to uh, coffee shop or however we interact yeah. with someone in small ways. And so the book is really looking at how do I feel shame in my life and join my life around this diagnosis? Mm -hmm. And then how does that then, like my own owning of it or pushing it away, affect the people I love? Mm. Um, yeah, being in denial can affect the people yeah. you love, unfortunately. And it also has to be tied to stigma, too. I mean, yeah, the shame stigma cycle constantly goes and goes. Exactly. And do you think writing this book helps you kind of break free of that for you, finally? Well, stigma is a funny word because we actually have the power to change that, whereas prejudice and oppression are mm -hmm. more tied to systems. And yes. that's something you, you know, hopefully a book can affect, but takes much more action mm -hmm. and much more involvement. So for me, yes, I mean, I take my medication and I say thank you to mm -hmm. it. Um, and I let all feelings come up and I, you know, allow myself to be in love, but also feel other more complex feelings with mm -hmm. my diagnosis. And that whole spectrum is... Mm -hmm. Um, not allowed to be boogeymaned away or kind of stigma can't touch that. Mm, yeah. mm, that's beautiful. And would you say there's a poem in this this book that really kind of points to that moment of that self-acceptance? Is there like a moment that you saw that you're like, this is that, it encapsulates that moment where I was like, aha, I now, I'm now accepting of this. I love that. Um, I, I would say so many, but there is one called Potion. Okay. Um, and it's really the moment, I think for so many people with mental illness, there is the stigma that like, it's not real. Mm -hmm. um, it's not legitimate. Get out of your head, whatever. And there was just a moment where for me, I had taken many medications, but once I took lithium, which was the right thing for me, um, it's not just like for everyone, mm -hmm. uh, because it was the right thing for me, I had a moment of, I asked my friend Kit, um, who I was staying with after being hospitalized, like, has the sun you know, just come out today. Mm -hmm. 
And it was when my lithium was basically kicking in, and I, I literally saw the sun. Like, it, it wiped a fog from me. Wow. She said, it's been out all week. And I think acceptance has to do not just with self-care or putting on masks or whatever, which are lovely and I do, but also with looking at reality mm-hmm. and saying, wow, this is a medication. This works. Mm-hmm. This worked for me. I'm allowed to live a full life. Yeah, you know? yeah that's incredible. Yeah. So what would you say that your main takeaway then is for folks reading this book at home as now it's traveling all across this country? Yeah. Go, you know, after the New York Times review, <laughs> everyone's going to be reading this. <laughs> so what do you want people to take away? Um, I guess if I may speak to you directly... Um, If you are somebody who's suffering from mental illness, then I hope it's a companion for you, whether you're just leaving the hospital or whether you're trying to figure out medication or whether you don't want to take medication. I hope that the book is a true friend to you. And if you're somebody who loves someone who's struggling with mental illness, then I hope it gives you a broader view. I mean, even my own mom, after reading it, said, and we're very close, she said, like, I know so much more about this experience. And then if you are somebody who prescribes medication or if you're somebody who's, you know, in medicine, then I recommend you read the book just to get, um, you know, a real human's voice mm. in your ear. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, thank you so much thank for Thank you so much thank for you having for, me. For, of course. And thank you. You know, this people, you know, people talk down to writers all the time, yeah. especially poets, but this work is real and what you're doing will, I think, save lives. So thank, thank you so, you so much, much for that. And you all, Ode to Lithium is out now. Up next, Stephanie sits down with Downton Abbey star, Elizabeth Johnny Weir tweeted, The Downton Abbey film was glorious and everything I wanted it to be. So happy I got to see it while in Yorkshire. Very thankful to the entire team for giving us this treat. And we have another tweet from Maureen Tate. You tweeted, Loved, loved, loved Downton Abbey. It had all of the heart and humor of the series. On a grand cinematic scale, it was meant to be seen. I didn't realize how much I missed this show until getting to revisit it tonight. Well, everyone is very excited for the Downton Abbey movie, and we are very excited to have Elizabeth McGovern, who of course stars as Lady Cora Crowley, in the new film with us now. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. So when the show ended, did you envision it being a film eventually, or were you surprised when the idea was floated to you? I wasn't surprised because I had heard rumors But I hate to confess this. I thought it would be a terrible idea. (laughs) This is why I'm not a producer, I suppose. Not most of the time. I just thought, well, we think we should just leave it where we left it and have it be a nice memory for people. Uh, I think it's a risk, you know, because there are are so many people with such high expectation and and you hate to disappoint them. But I hope we've managed to um, give them what they're yearning for. In this film. Did you feel any better when you got the script and you saw how the movie was going to play out? Yes. Um, I mean, they'd obviously, uh, the, the powers that be had made a decision to give the fans what they want. That, that was clearly a decision. I mean, there had been a lot of conceptual discussions, I think. You know, should we jump way forward in time or should we go way back in time, you know, take a whole different approach to it. And finally, I think at the end of the day, they thought, no, the fans have invested in these characters. They've invested in the house. They've invested in the life, in the group. And they want to see that again. And they want to be reassured that it's still there for them. So that's what we've done. I feel like fans will be very happy about that. Because it is, so. when, you're, when you watch a movie or a reboot or anything, it's almost like being back with a group of friends you haven't seen in a while, which I'm sure was an experience for you as set, right? Where had you stayed in contact with all of your castmates or was it fun to be all back together again? It was really fun. There's, there's always been something about the chemistry of this group that is one of those things that you can conspire for hours or years to try to create. But I 
personally think it's sometimes just magic. And, and it really did happen in this case. And that kicked right back in almost immediately. It was like we'd never left. And it was kind of like we were a family again. So the story picks up in 1927, and the main plot of the movie is all about a royal visit. I have to admit, I watched the movie, and I spent so much time afterwards Googling the real royals that oh, were in that I time. It was so it's just very interesting. Uh, but you guys also had a royal visit to your set. Kate Middleton came to your set. What was that like? Well, it was mad. I mean, there's something about royalty, particularly in England. People just literally go mad. <laughs> and... Um, Everybody was so excited and we all lined up to greet her when she came through the door. And I'll never forget seeing the, the producer sort of like, you know, frozen with um, total um, awe and respect. <laughs> um, and she was lovely and um, talked to everybody. And, you know, it's just like, it's crazy how excited people get about the idea of the monarchy. It's just crazy. We saw a story that you told that you accidentally slipped into an English accent when you met Kate. Is that true? Did you? Oh, that, no, that's a good story, but no, that didn't happen. I did when, when we all came back to do the show again, and I started my first scene. I remember it was with Laura, and I suddenly heard this voice, and it was English. And I think I, because I sort of thought, oh, I'm in Downton Abbey. <laughs> but, of course, my part is American, and I'm American, and um, it was very odd that I did that, but uh, it didn't last very long. It's so funny because I feel like I've only been to England once, but even when you're talking to a British yes. person, they have such a beautiful accent that sometimes yes. you just kind of want to do it as yes. an American person. It's, it's funny because I've lived there for 26 years and I feel like um, just as an act of sheer uh, determination, I, I get more and more American just to kind of hang on to something about who I am. But it is really tempting. I think when I was first there, I, I was very, um, I guess what you call transatlantic and it kind of what I now feel is in quite an obnoxious way. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. You want to hang on to your roots. Like yeah. That. Yeah. So obviously we are a Twitter show. And so we always check out our guests timeline to see what they're tweeting about. And we noticed you don't shy away from tweeting your political opinions. Do you have any thoughts on what's happening in the UK right now with all of the messy politics? So it's kind of like the same as here. We're yeah, it just, is. It's a huge it's mess similar. both places. I, I, personally, I feel like we're in a, in a very frightening time because people are pulling into themselves so much and that finally, you know, we have no choice but to connect and work together as a planet. And um, although it's, I don't like to talk about politics, uh, it's, it's very hard to feel that, I, that you have a platform and not address it in some way uh, because um, you, you feel like somebody's got to do something and it, it's, it's easy to feel quite helpless. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very frightened about um, uh, this idea that we're, we're all so um, against reaching out to refugees and, and that we're pulling out of Europe because I, I just don't think that even with the best will in the world, that's ever going to work. You are also in a band. You guys yeah. have a new album coming out. I think that is so cool. Can oh, you tell please. me a little bit about it? Well, this album is called The Truth. 
And um, we usually release albums as Sadie and the Hotheads, which is the band name. This one is in my own name, um, just because we thought it might be easier for people to connect up to it. Um, but it is all the same musicians for the most part. There's exciting collaborations on it. Samuel L. Jackson uh, and I do a, a thing together on a song. No way. Yeah, way, way. I that know. is so cool. Yeah, it's, check it out. It's on um, Spotify um, and, you know, all those places that you can find albums. And, I mean, the... the Beauty of it for me is that we're we're really trying to do it just for its own sake. We're not trying to really slot into any music industry um, requirement or protocol, and so it, it is what it is. And you know, I hope people enjoy it. But um, that that's that's what kind of makes it joyful. Well, since you are the only American in Downton Abbey, we wanted to play a little game with you. We like okay. games here at BuzzFeed. Okay. So it's going to be: Would you rather U.S. versus U.K. In what respect? Uh, so we're going to give you okay. the paddles. Oh, I'm I gonna see. Give you oh, a I thought that was the question. No, 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 no. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay. Uh, so we're going to okay. yeah. give you the paddles, and I'm going to say different things, and you're going to have to tell me, do you want the UK version or the US version? Okay. Good. Would you rather go on a date with the UK's Idris Elba right. or the US's Brad Pitt? Um, I'm going to go US. Yes, I agree. Yeah, because I know Brad, you know, <laughs> and he's, he's nice, yeah. so i got to say that. Okay. I don't know Idris, you know, he might be nice too, but... I'm sure he's nice. He seems yeah. nice. Yeah. yeah, they're both nice. Listen, like, I'd go for both of them. <laughs> <laughs> Would you rather live in the Buckingham Palace in the UK or the White House in the US? Uh, like, I know what my answer at the, is. At the moment, yeah, obviously. It's a palace. The White House isn't really compared to a palace. yeah. It's no palace. And I like the people better in um, Buckingham Palace at the moment. <laughs> Very true. Anyway. Would you rather listen to Adele of the UK or Beyonce all day? Oh, that's so hard. Oh. oh you can do both. So Can I do both? Yes, you can, can do, both. do both. Good. Okay. Thank yeah. you. I get it. They're both great. Okay. Would you rather, this is the last one. Would you rather binge watch The Crown or This Is Us? Quintessential UK oh, show. Oh, that's hard too. But yes. I'm gonna. This is really, really hard because they're both great shows. But I'm gonna go. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. I like The Crown. It's a good. It's show. a good show. It's similar to your guys' show too. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, thank you so much for oh, coming for on me. and chatting with me and okay. playing my game. I'm sorry okay. it was so confusing. Yeah. <laughs> Next <laughs> time we'll play something like chess. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dallas Abbey in theaters this Friday, September 20th, and stay tuned for more AMCDM. Welcome back, y'all. It's now time for Add Us. Yes. I just have to, before we get into your tweets, I loved your conversation with June for a lot of reasons. One of them is that I didn't realize how political she was. Yeah, I love yeah. her and Grace and Frankie and had no idea this woman is out here changing the world with her literature and yeah. essays. She's, I did not know this, so thank you for that. Well, one of the things I like about the book is that it actually, like, there are all of these questions that make running for office seem mm -hmm. just like, how do you even, where do you even begin, yeah. and it literally has like an itemized checklist of here are all the things you need to think about and consider from uh, you know where you're going to get money and how much money you need mm -hmm. to like what your message is and why you're running. So it was interesting. One of the things that I uh, especially appreciated about the book 
was also it says like, you know, men are just going to run for office. Like they're just, mm-hmm. they're not waiting to do it. So yeah. why, why actually wait to do it? Yeah, do so. it now. There's Especially in this climate. There's so, and people yeah. forget that there's so many offices on every level. Always yeah, exactly. Folks, whether it's your neighborhood, your community, your county, you can get involved in these in really incredible ways. Um, and this book, I flipped through it backstage and I was like, oh, this is actually very accessible. Like it looks like a workbook. Yeah. I love it. And also it does help you figure out what kind of office to run for. Mm-hmm. Like what is the best match for you? Like, mm-hmm. you know, in your town or... I don't know, like in your school, whatever, whatever it is. There's your something PTA there. PTA board. So, there you go. No, exactly, exactly. Like Which there are, are important so many ways. Seats. There are so Those many are ways really to get important. involved. Yeah. Well, we also wanted to know how you feel about bringing back artists as holograms. <laughs> DK Wright said, "Let's not," and I think that's it. I there mean, we go. let's not. Yeah. Done. Done. And Hebnora responded with this GIF. I'm, yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's my entire mood and feeling about yes. that. I'm glad that we all agree on this. I just want to know who is who doesn't tickets. agree. Yes, and is actually spending uh, money on tickets to see this. Okay. I don't know. Reveal yourself. Well, bless your heart. Well, thank you to our guests Ted Lou, George Johnson, Shira Ehrlichman, June Diane Raphael, and Elizabeth McGovern. We will be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. with more Amps DM. Have a great rest of your day, you guys. 